Good morning, church. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Really glad that all of you are here this morning and returning or guests with us. Your guest with us today's a little bit of a doozy, and uh, it's one of those passages of scripture that, you know, just like the end of last week's passage, it has an intensity about it, and Jesus is just not messing around at all, and uh, you know, unfortunately. You know, some of the things I'm going to say are going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to embrace that they're actually applications of this passage. And my hope would be that today you kind of look at me and kind of look at my story a little bit. You kind of recognize, um, you know, I have been in the belly of this. I have been in the belly of this in, in megachurch world. And I've seen the amount of resources and money and the desire for influence that compromises truth, that appears as godliness, but is really just um, pastors and churches parading their pride and greed. And so um, one of the things I've encouraged you to do as a church is to listen to repentant people. You know, it's like for an alcoholic, if you're trying to actually repent of your alcoholism, one of the things you need to do is go listen to a repentant alcoholic and hear them talk to you about how horrific their life was because of their addiction. And all sin is like that. All sin is like that. Um, you listen to repentant people, they actually have something to say. <laughs> they know the belly of it. They know the nastiness of the sin. They know... Um, the disastrous pain and consequences. They know, um, they know how hard the path was out and what it took to rebuild their life. And they don't ever want to go back to that. And I hope that you can think about that a little bit in, in kind of the story of our, our church's life as you hear what I'm saying, that um, you won't just hear the applications or just hear the words on the page, but in some ways you'll hear personal testimony and story, you know, of our church's repentance. And I'll mention a few things along the way. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's true. You desire to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. You desire to be worshipped truly and truthfully and according to the way that Your words command. And oh God, how corrupt of a people we are that we turn even the worship of our God and Father into profiteering. Help us to learn, O oh God, from Israel and their rejection of You and their robbery and their greed and their pride and their cold-heartedness and ignorance of Jesus. God, that Your church, redeemed by the blood of our precious 
Lamb, your Christ and our Lord Jesus, that we might worship you in purity, that we may ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and pure hearts because Christ's blood was shed for us and you have clothed us with robes of righteousness. And may we pursue your will lest we be like them. May you humble us and call us away from the pride and greed that is so easily entangled and destroyed and made cold the church in our land. And may there be a returning to you to this place of prayer, to this place of true worship amongst your people where you exa- are exalted for God to, as God most high as you are and where your will and your kingdom come are the hearts of your people in their marriages, in their work, in their family and parenting, in their, all the relationships under the sun, in their private life when no one is looking. May this church be a church that lives according to your will and no one else's. But lead your church in your land to repentance. In this land, make us a people who are broken-spirited and contrite-hearted. Strike at the den of robbers among us. Cast them down. Judge them from their high and lofty places, for you are a God who exalts the humble and the lowly. Fill us with your spirit and with the illumination of not just what your words say, but the way they should be understood today for us. That we may turn from every wicked way and walk in the ways of your commandments. for your true worship and your glory and your jealousy for your own. Do it, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may not know this, um, but in this cleansing of the temple or Jesus purifying the temple here, this is actually the second time Jesus does that. I don't know if you knew that, but this actually happens twice in the life of Jesus. The um, first time it happens, you probably never... Are maybe have never thought about it, but in John chapter 2, right after the miracle at the wedding, water to wine, the wedding at Cana, Jesus goes into the temple and does the same thing. And uh, really, at the beginning of his ministry. Okay, So, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, uh, as recorded in John, and this happens a second time, here, three years later. And so, Here you have with Israel the arrival of Jesus in context. Remember, Jesus says, you did not know the time of your visitation, the visitation of your King and God and your Messiah and your Lord. You were ignorant. You did not recognize His visitation. And so for three years, even after He cleansed the temple and demonstrated His God-ordained divine authority to rule the temple, to demand God's worship, um, the, the people, there's no change and no change and no listening and no listening. And three years later, Jesus is doing the same thing again in uh, the beginning of Holy Week. Is headed towards the cross. Israel was stubborn. They were stiff-necked. They were hard of heart to their Lord. And in the context, Jesus demonstrates, even in the severity of their wickedness, He demonstrates His compassion because He walks into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, and He weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem and Jerusalem's rejection of their God. And how He longed to gather them all the years, down through the centuries, to gather them under His wing. And they would not have it. And now, it's coming to the end for Jerusalem as we know it and for the temple. You did not know the time of your visitation. Now, it's important that you understand when that's said, you did not know the time of your visitation. Um, 
And what we tend to think is, when we hear that, we think, oh, they were ignorant. They, just, they were just ignorant. And because they were ignorant, they were not guilty for anything. We tend to think that ignorance and blindness is just we didn't know. You know, like, when you have children, like, what's the number one reason that they use to escape from obedience to anything? It's like, I didn't know. You know? And that works, like as a child for a little while. You know. you know, teenagers are like masters at the I didn't know phrase. It's like at some point, you just don't get to say that anymore. You know? I didn't know um, ignorance doesn't allow you to avoid guilt or culpability. And so when Jesus says, you do not know the day of your visitation, He's not just talking about like, they're not going to be able to um, plea. They didn't know. They just didn't know um, at the judgment seat of Christ. It's willful ignorance. It's ignorance that's... It's not that they couldn't know. It's that they wouldn't know. Ignorance is produces guilt. It wasn't that they couldn't recognize Jesus. They were just ignorant and there was actually an impossibility here for which they should not be guilty. It's that they would not. And it's very important that you understand that your ignorance of God is culpable. Like, can you imagine standing at the judgment seat of Christ and just going like, I just didn't know. Now you know. <laughs> and of course, God is gracious with you know, His instruction of us as He grows us up to maturity in the knowledge of Him. He's kind to His children in their, in their progress in the faith. But we still have to understand that when our ignorance is willful, it's culpable. And on the last day, there will be no excuses. God has made Himself known to the whole world. Right? Romans 1, verse 20, so that they are without excuse. I didn't know will not save you in the last day, just like it wouldn't save Israel when Jesus came to judge. They did not know the time of their visitation because they would not know. And so Jesus begins His ministry cleansing the temple, and He does it again in the final days before his final rejection and crucifixion. I read somewhere this week, but I couldn't find the reference when I was going back to it, but I read somewhere someone said, uh, the cleansing of the temple is Jesus' greatest miracle. Have you ever thought about the cleansing of the temple and the nature of what happened there and why it might be considered miraculous? If you think about the temple for a moment, um, Herod's temple, okay? This is uh, the second temple. This is... um, Herod has rebuilt this temple to just be absolutely gargantuan. And uh, the temple court, the full size of the temple grounds would be, it was like 1,600 feet in length and 900 feet in width. Now, and to give you an idea, that, the, that total ground um, is about 25 football fields. This place is huge. It's absolutely huge. You have to work, walk more than a quarter mile to walk from the front wall to the back wall. It's absolutely huge. And it's the kind of thing that, I mean, if, you would have, if we would have walked in there, just would have been completely awestruck by the size of the place. Just dumbfounded by how large it is. Now, what was the temple... Um, to be about is to be about the worship of God. Right? This is the central place of the worship of God. This is where God dwelled most immediately with His people. And you should say with His repentant people. When His people wouldn't repent, He left. But this is the central place of the worship of God. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus is the temple. Because it's through Jesus that we worship God. 
Right? There is no worship of God apart from Jesus. Jesus is the central place by, uh, and person by which we worship God. And so this is the temple in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about the temple, but just enough to know this because it pertains to our passage. The outer court of the temple, which pretty much surrounded the entire place, on one wall, much larger, and then, you know, it's kind of like a corridor all the way around the entire temple complex is the court of the Gentiles. And this is where, this is as far as the Gentiles could go. Um, and there's, you know, restrictions for increasing, the increasing, as you get closer and closer to the holy place and then the most holy place, there's laws that govern the worship of God so that it was done right. And... Um, and so in the court of the Gentiles, which is this kind of corridor all the way around, which would have been a, a massive area, all the way around this temple, is you would have walked in and it would have been a marketplace. Just a marketplace. You know, when I was in, you know, if you've ever been to like marketplaces in big cities, where it's just kind of hustle and bustle and booth after booth after booth, and someone's, you know, constantly trying to sell you something. You know, when I was in Kuala Lumpur um, in Malaysia, we would went to the marketplace, you know, it's like, it's kind of what I envision. It's just like booth after booth after booth after booth after booth set up all the way around the court of the Gentiles as a money-making, as a money-making opportunity off of the worship of God. Right now, here we're in the time of the Passover, okay, so... Um, in 66 A.D., when the temple was finally completed, now think about that. 66 A.D., the temple's finally completed. 70 A.D., it's destroyed. Think about that. God's just like, you're not going to worship like this. But in 66 A.D., we have historical record that upwards of 260,000 lambs were sacrificed during the Passover as a couple hundred thousand pilgrims came into Jerusalem to worship God during the, during the Passover. Like 260,000. Right? It's just hard to get your mind around that amount of... And it wouldn't have only been... The, those would just be the lambs sacrificed for the Passover. You know, but what about the doves and the bulls? and the heifers sacrificed for any number of reasons according to the Old Testament law for the true worship of God. And so what, what the leaders of Israel, and, and I think it's important that you note this in the text, right? he was teaching daily in the temple, and here it is, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men. And it's important that you think about that as the Jewish religious leaders who held all the power the Jewish religious leaders who held all the power. They're the ones who have actually, the Sanhedrin actually ruled over, so there's kind of a ruling court in Israel called the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who ruled over the court of the Gentiles. Right? And so you know these names. You think like Caiaphas, Annas. When you read through, your, um, read through the Gospel account and Jesus goes and sees, these are the men who oversaw the setup of the marketplace. They're the, ones who, they're the ones who profited off of booth after booth that had this animal for sale and this oil for sale and that salt for sale and really at outrageous prices. Right, now, when I was in Kuala Lumpur, everything was dirt cheap. I mean, just dirt cheap compared to the U.S. dollar. I mean, um, you, just, you could buy food for nothing. But here, think of it more like movie theater popcorn, you know, times 10. Or think of it more like when you go to the sports game and you go to the concession stand and Coke is like $6. Except here, we're not in a basketball game and we're not at a movie. We're here to worship God. People have traveled great distances to come and worship God in the temple, you know, one thing I ask, and that will I seek after, right? David's prayer. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This place, this is a beautiful place to seek God. And now you're getting charged an outrageous price 
just to buy an animal for sacrifice to line the pockets of the powerful religious leaders. It's profiteering off the worship of God. And it's not just profiteering off the worship of God. It's profiteering off the, the Gentiles, the foreigners coming into the Gentile court, coming from um, any number of places. So Israel it, here is not only profiting off the worship of God, they're keeping all the nations from the worship of God. In fact, I just want to read to you and when Jesus says, you know, my, my father's house is a house of prayer. That's a quote from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. And I want to read to you what Isaiah says so that you can get the context of why this is so important to Jesus. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3, Let not the foreigner, this is just the non-Israelite. Israel is to be a light for the nations, right? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep My Sabbath, who choose the things that please Me, and hold fast My covenant, I will give in My house and within My walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and who does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. And here in the court of the Gentiles where the foreigner who have joined themselves to the Lord come and they're made a mockery of because of the cost for them to just worship God. The desire of the godly was to worship God in His temple and gaze upon His beauty and to seek His face there. Far cry from the suggestion of some that a ten-cent dove was being sold for $10 and that was the offering of the poor. The problem wasn't that someone had to buy something. The problem was that the whole thing was about profiting off the supposed worship of God. To the point it had nothing to do with the true worship of God at all. Temples destroyed, worthy of judgment. Jesus is the temple. And we come to God to worship God on the basis of his death and resurrection. And apart from his death and resurrection, apart from him dying on that cross for the penalty of our sins, not just for our sins. Don't let your kids just say, for our sins. That's meaningless. It's for the penalty of our sins. He paid the penalty on that cross in our place. The death penalty He paid. The wrath of God He bore until none was left for those who believe. And we come to then worship God being the redeemed by the life and death and resurrection of our Lord. And the church is also called God's temple in the New Testament. He is building us up to be a house of prayer, a place of worship. And before I get to some more applications about the way that we have made um, the worship of God a robber's den 
in the American church. I do want to encourage all of us that as a church, I do think we've, we've made fits and starts at being a house of prayer, you know? We've had fits and starts. We've, um, but on the whole, if we are looking at the big picture, I think as a, as a church, I think we've grown in prayer. I think we've grown in prayer. You know, our women gather on Thursdays now to pray for our church and our ministry and missionaries and any number of things. I think more people in our church ask for prayer than have ever asked for prayer before. More consistently, we, um, the elders receive requests for prayer, and, and we really do pray for those requests. We really do pray for those requests. I do think now we spend more time in prayer actually on Sunday morning, even though I think some of that can still grow. I think we spend more time actually in prayer on Sunday morning um, than we used to for sure. I think there's ways we would love to see that grow more. So many ways in the church that we just enjoy the beauty of what God has made the church to be. You know, we behold the glory of God together. You know, we behold the glory of God together in hearing the word of God in calling on His name, and singing truths to Him, about Him, in song. We behold the beauty of God in the household of God. In Israel, it was all monetized. It was all monetized. I mean, imagine, you know, the church, as you think about coming to the church, don't think about it like the temple proper per se, but God has made the church to be a place where His glory dwells with His people gathered in communities of faith all around the world and in the whole all around the world. Imagine coming to church and um, we just set up a booth for you to pay to enter. Just imagine that. It just sounds horrific. You know, it should make you feel sick. That's the nature of Israel. I'm just going to argue that I think that's the nature of the American church. That's the nature of the American church. Because what does this ultimately have to do with us? Well, the profiteering off the worship of God never ceases. The profiteering off the worship of God never ceases. We have to face up to the fact that it just isn't about the Jews 2,000 years ago. When Jesus says, my, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. It's hard for me to imagine a more indictful statement that Jesus would speak to the church in America. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, said if we do not do God's will... Now here's the thing. The, um, uh, the early church trembled at this reality. The American church has no shame. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, said, if we do not do God's will, we shall be like the saying, my house became a den of robbers. And depending on where you've come from in trying to understand what preaching is, preaching can't be just lecturing you about how messed up the temple was in Israel. Now go your merry way and understand how to apply it yourself. That's not preaching. Preaching is to our hearts and minds and consciences calling us to repentance and faithfulness and return and obedience and to the true worship of Jesus Christ. And that actually matters in specifics. And we have to grasp that we are them in countless ways. Just think, just as Israel kept the foreigners 
from the worship of God by profaning the Gentile court. You know, so it's booth after booth after booth after animal after animal after, you know, doves in cages and, I mean, just littering. And Jesus comes in and He drives them all out. Remember, we're talking about in the temple court an area that would fit 25 football fields. Now, granted, the marketplace is in the court of the Gentiles all the way around, and Jesus just drives them out to purify the temple. <laughs> I mean, you just think about it. How does he do that? Right? Well, like, if you look at the other passages and their accounts, you know, it's like, well, it was a whip of cords. Wouldn't everybody run? No. Not that amount of people. There is divine power and authority at work, and Jesus completes, you know, tables get overturned, barstools get flung all over the place, money's flying. Jesus is getting, get out! And he doesn't stop. And I don't know how long it took. I don't know if in, you know, God's power, it, he just sent people fleeing. I, I don't know exactly. I don't know the details of exactly how it happened, but he drives them out. And we need the same because we, just as Israel kept the foreigners from the worship of God by profaning the Gentile court, we, we send out our wealthy missionaries to poor places and people are left thinking that they must not believe God enough because He hasn't blessed them with riches like He has blessed the American church. Right? Have you ever heard stories of you know, people in poor places in Africa asking the question, what are we doing wrong? Our modern Christian celebrities are fueled by pride and greed. The money that they have made off their book deals, and frankly, who has even written a good one recently? Who has even written one that was that good recently? Right, there's a few. And those ones aren't making anywhere near as much money. The money they've made off their book deals, often on the church's time, is absolutely filthy. And frankly, what amount of truth is even contained in them that can help the church today? Our small group started the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and we didn't finish it. But if I had known before um, we started reading that as a small group that every Christian in America was singing the praise of that book and the book was sold out everywhere and you couldn't even find it because every small group in America was reading the book, I already would have been suspicious of it and never would have, never would have let our group to start reading it. See, that's extreme. <laughs> Just think about the money. And it's not that money's just bad, but for crying out loud. Here's, on the one hand, here's what you want to say. Here's what you want to say. You want to say, well, the church in America is really sick. And then we point out the sickness and you say, yeah, but that's not really it. Right? You can't have it both ways. What's it going to be? Are you going to have faith and repent of your pride and greed? Is the church in America going to repent of its pride and greed are we just going to continue to dilly-dally in our hypocrisy and go, on the one hand, well, the church in America is sick, but there's no real reasons why, and certainly when it gets to the point where we're on the point of the reason why, well, that's not really at your extreme. No, I just want repentance.
pastors using the church as a corporate ladder. I mean, the dirt desertion of the flock all over our land because I'm such a good pastor and I'm such a good preacher and I really deserve a bigger salary and I really deserve to pastor a bigger church. And so, you know, I've been here five or six or seven years and um, it's time. It's time for me to make an upward move. I think I've got more experience now and if I make, a, make an upward move, that's, you know, I can really serve a bigger church well anyways. It's just selfish opportunism. It's the leaders of Jesus' church profiteering off the worship of God. Right? And now our churches have campuses. And shame on John Piper for ever starting additional campuses to Bethlehem. He just gave room for all the other churches to start doing the same thing in the Reformed world. Shame on him for that. And I love John Piper, and I have great respect for him more than most. But shame on him for that. And we have campuses because the pastor is so awesome, you would never want to entrust, you would never want to entrust the ministry of the word to other pastors and just plant a church. He's too awesome for that. I mean, he's so awesome. He's so awesome. More people need to hear him on a video screen than actually have a shepherd. He's just awesome. Have you ever heard him? He's awesome. And of course, with that, right, because he's so awesome comes the growth in the campuses and the additional money and resources that then is sold to you. Do you understand how this works? It's sold to you as God is really doing a work here that's really giving us more resources to accomplish more things in the world. And I just think, yeah, it just made the outer Gentile court busier. The marketplace grew. It was really amazing. God was working it. And we're like, yeah, because we want to be a part of something really big and mighty too that God is doing in the world. you just see how much you hate humility and how this all works? I mean, for years, for years, the Gospel Coalition and Crossway, among others, have peddled the fad of modern Gospel-centeredness. Can you just see how this works? They have peddled the fad of modern gospel-centeredness. And it's a fad. So why does every book have to be titled Gospel-Centered Parenting? Gospel-Centered Motherhood? Gospel-Centered Fatherhood? You know, well, when I wake up, I put my gospel-centered socks on and my gospel-centered blue suede shoes, and I put my gospel-centered dress shirt on, I get in my gospel-centered car. And I go worship my gospel-centered God while I just let the checks deposit in the bank over how gospel-centered I am. It's sickening. Jesus has always been the center of his church. Now, is it important that we grasp the truth of the gospel? Is it important that the gospel is preached to Christians and that we understand the ins and outs of Christ crucified and risen again for us and the implications for how we live our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. But don't you see the way the publishing house works in order to sell the books to the modern fad? Also, make sure your books don't contain the law of God. 
and make sure they don't contain the fear of God and make sure they don't contain the judgment of God, but make sure you mention them to pacify so that all the Christians can go, yeah, but that's not really what they're saying. They're not saying reject the law of God and the judgment of God. And yeah, but that's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. You can't keep the law of God. Jesus keeps the law of God. Salvation is Jesus keeping the law of God for you in your place, paying its penalty and cursing and giving you its blessing. Certainly don't preach repentance about anything specific. Certainly don't really deal with issues where the church is absolutely in complete compromise like I'm trying to do this morning with our pride and greed because we're a robber's den and we are profiteers off the worship of God. Certainly don't do this because this is not gospel-centered. Yet it was Jesus who went into the temple, right? I have no illusion that somehow this is exactly what Jesus was doing. I'm just applying this text to our culture. Certainly don't write about anything that costly and the need for repentance. These books sell better. And the Reformed Church just eats it up, just eats it up, and is blind to the fact that it's a robber's den. It's a robber's den. Or think about Bible translating. Have you ever thought about Bible translating, right? Because you're trans, so here's, like, don't be naive. Just because we're translating the Bible doesn't mean all of a sudden it comes from holy men with faith. Bible translation is big business. What's the most, what's the, what's the best-selling book in history? And what's the best-selling book every year? The Bible, by a landslide. Now, don't forget that we actually believe the Bible teaches that men are sinners. And when there's that amount of money on the table, I mean just billions of dollars going through Bible translation and publishing houses, don't you think that men who are sinners might like a little more piece of the pie sometimes. Of course, right? Of course. Right? Don't forsake your doctrine of sin all of a sudden because we're just talking about the Bible. Right? And so certain things uh, increasingly get changed in Scripture and get cut out of Scripture and you wouldn't even know it. You know, for instance, in the ESV, which we use, I use. This is an ESV right here. It has some major issues. It's a very good translation in a lot of ways, but then the translators reveal themselves to not have faith and to not have a willingness to put up a cost and a desire to sell more Bibles so that we can profiteer off people's access to God and His Word and ultimately pervert people's understanding of God. For instance, you know, in 1 Timothy 4.7, if you look in your ESV, there's a there's a phrase, fit only for old women. It's not in there. There's not even a footnote. Look at the old Bible translations. It's there. Look in your Greek Bible. It's there. It's not even there. Didn't even make a footnote. Well, why would, of course, you know, we don't want anything that critical of women in our Bible. Not today. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Right? There's a phrase in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It'll say something like, nor practice homosexuality. It's talking about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not, in, do not be deceived. Right? It goes through a list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Right? If you come up after me and tell me I'm wrong about this, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, do not be deceived. It'll say something like, nor those who practice homosexuality, but it's two very different words there. And you may have a footnote in your ESV about that that says something about 
well, you can read the footnote. I'm not going to be overly graphic about the nature of what they say. It has nothing to do with what the words mean. It has to do with homosexuality, and then it has to do with one word means soft men. Soft men. It's not just about homosexual acts. It's about a complete rejection of being male and manly in Christian maleness. But they just completely gloss over that. It's the way the word's been understood for thousands of years, literally. I'm not going to... I can give you more on that if you want to read that. Okay. I can give you more on pretty much every point I'm making here if you want. I just can't give you everything. I can't make a... You know, I can't give you a book chapter on each of these points. Soft men. Effeminate. If you look in your KJV, it says effeminate. Soft men will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that makes sense. Jesus says, be, tells us to be strong. Act like men. Stand firm. Fight the good fight. Softness avoids everything that has to do with that. Which is just the implication is just this is what rebellion against God looks like. It looks like soft maleness that will not carry responsibility won't work won't fight won't love in the home won't love in the church plays way too much video games I mean on and on and on the list goes do not be deceived Your Bible translators didn't think it was a good idea to put that in there because we'd rather just stick to things like homosexual acts or gender-neutral Bible translations. It's just like the idea that we even have a gender-neutral Bible translation. Like, why would that not have existed 100 years ago? Why all of a sudden did we wise up to the fact that the word brothers has to be translated. Brothers and sisters. You are a daughter of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, women. You are not left out. Can you imagine a hundred years ago us even having to talk about gender-neutral Bible translations? profiteering off the wrong worship of God. I want to encourage you to remember to help fund Dr. Tim Keller's retirement. His fruit in the Reformed Church is only liberalism, but you can buy his sermons for $1,600 online right now. If you go to gospelandlife.com, they're 50% off. I'm thinking I'm going to save less for retirement so I can sell my sermons at the end, you know? You think anybody would ever listen to them? No, but they will listen to Tim Keller for $1,600. It's just ridiculous. Why does the Apostle Paul say things like peddling the Word of God if it never happens today? Let's just assume it just doesn't happen today. No one ever does that. Now, it's the point where we hate what I'm saying is the point where we put our finger on it and say that's what it is. I sat in a meeting one time, and this is real stuff. I have, I have sat in the Robertson and watched this happen. I sat in a meeting one time where a megachurch leader was working with his finance guy trying to figure out if there was $400,000 available in order to purchase um, these really expensive cubes, and they were cubes that you then built together in order to make like a giant screen, you know, and I mean, it really was pretty cool by coolness standards, 
And in fact, that was the reason to spend $400,000 on it. The reason to spend $400,000 on it was, man, nobody else is going to have something this cool on their church stage. Literally. And I think our screen is just fine. You know? This one's better than the other one. We pulled this one out of my, uh, it's been sitting in my workshop in the back of our garage in a tub for like six years. Because the other one, all the black was actually more like just covered in gaff tape to try to hold, hold the whole thing together. So we didn't want to spend money and get a new one. <laughs> and still haven't. It's like I say, just let the gaff tape build, you know? big megachurch leaders, you know, they just function like kings, right? And what do kings do? Kings pass on their luxurious wealth to their sons. And this is what the church does. Big megachurch leaders, they pass on their wealth to the sons. By the way, if you're in a megachurch, you probably should get out. Secondly, especially if... um, I mean, just ask questions. It should be a normal question in the church that you go to. Hey, what, do, what does our pastor actually get paid? One of the corruptions in the American church has been to uh, pay pastors according to business world mentality, which means if more people come to the church, it should be commensurate with the level of responsibility of like the same level of responsibility as a CEO. Try to find that in the Bible. Try to find that in the Bible. It's profiteering off the worship of God. I don't know how to give you parameters to judge your pastor's salary per se, but you know, if it's a complete outrage, you'll probably at least know that. But he's the pastor of a big church. I don't care. I don't care. And then I know that some of you love the American gospel. And the American gospel in some ways clarifies that salvation is not by works and that there are a lot of false professors in uh, the United States. There are a lot of false professors in the United States and the true gospel is Christ and him paying the penalty for our sins in our place and a life of repentance and faith ensues. Okay, And that Jesus is the center. And I watched it for about 30 minutes. And then I just turned it off. And it wasn't that everybody in there was bad. I mean, I, I love Brother Paul. You know, I appreciate so much about his piety and his life of devotion to Christ. And I'll never have it. I appreciate it. But then you have the who's who. It's another who's who of Christianity. I'm like, do you not see the irony here? The in trying to correct the American gospel, we have the who's who of celebrity Christianity to do it for us? Like if you can hear it from somebody who everybody is well known... You know, just think about how do they get you to go to a conference? Here's the speakers. Here's the list of conference speakers. These are people who really have something to say and something that you really need to listen to. And they show up with, you know, and speak with lips like a seraph. And we go, wow, wow, wow. And it was really worth your $350 conference fee. not just that it's a who's who, because that's the only way to sell anything in America, is it has to be a who's who in Christianity. 
it's that here now you have one guy who's more responsible for the worst and most wicked conference um, for gay Christians to come to to feel safe and comfortable in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's called Revoice. It happened in the Missouri Presbytery a couple years ago. And you have the former president of Covenant Theological Seminary, Brian Chapel, on American Gospel, clarifying the gospel for me, but he's more responsible than anyone, um, anyone for Covenant Seminary's guilt in establishing the conference Revoice for gay Christians to come to to feel comfortable and safe in the Church of Jesus Christ. I think I'm going to start sinning more. And then I'm going to start a conference for thieving Christians. You know? And then I'm going to start lying more. And then I'm going to start a conference for lying Christians so lying Christians can feel safe in the church of Jesus Christ. I want every gay person in Bloomington to repent and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I have a dear friend who's a pastor who's a repentant homosexual. That's not the issue. The issue is why does that sin have pride of place? And why do we say gay Christian? Because we've got to find a way to profit, to profiteer off the false worship of God. And so then here you have him telling us about the Christ-centered preaching. Tell me why my preaching's not Christ-centered anymore. Maybe I should buy your book so I can do it just right. Maybe I'll learn how to have gay Christian conferences too. Or then you have the guy who pushing critical race theory, big name in the Southern Baptist Convention, telling the other guy in the video, right? I just know of this telling the other guy in the video he just doesn't get it because he's not white. I mean, white people, we're not great at celebration. I, I joked with us last week about that, right? You know? But, like, we can't understand anything about race because we're not black. And you're the one clarifying for me the nature of what the gospel is? I can't remember the other thing that irritated me about it. But. And many of you will remember the way our church was planted. You know, it's important that as we talk about all these things that it's not just out there. And you know I don't let it. You know, you who are here regularly know that I don't let it just stay out there. Right? You know, the way our church was planted from a mega church was we had, uh, when we, our family moved here, we had three months to be a self-sustaining, financially self-sustaining church um, with a core group of enough people, you know, which at that point is just enough people to pay for me to survive and provide for my family. That's kind of the point at that at that point in time three months three months nothing happens in three months you know somehow god was really gracious to us and that actually did happen but it bore really bad fruit in our church for a long time really bad fruit i think probably for five years and the reason it bore really bad fruit in our church for five years was because it was because um, our church felt, always felt like we're on the border of death because we just can't make it. We just can't pay the bills. Let me ask you, who's the head of the church when the church is under that amount of oppression from the reality of money? Money is the head of the church. So this was our plan for pastors to plant churches and profiteer off the worship of God, off the backs of people who they don't even know. Just give me a puke bucket. 
the amount of days I've just felt sick over that. You know, it's like someone would come to our church, and it wasn't—it was like like a guest would come, and it wasn't like, "Hey, we love you. We're excited what God's doing here. If we can be a blessing to you, you know, we'd love to have you and get to know you more." It was more like, "We've got to have you. Or we're gonna die." <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, it very much was like that. Yeah, that was our church growth plan. <laughs> We gotta have you or we're gonna die. (laughs) Well, Jesus detests the profaning of holy things. Jesus purified the temple because he detests the profiteering off the worship of God. The point isn't that money doesn't ex- can't exist or somehow we're supposed to now embrace a poverty gospel or churches can't pay their pastors. No, there's plenty in Scripture about that kind of stuff. What we're talking about is the profiteering off of the worship of God and usually the profiteering off the wrong worship of God. So Jesus detests it, you know. Let us return to the beauty of the house of the Lord being a place of worship. A house of prayer. A place where we have the heart of David. That the one thing we want is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple all the days of our life. Let us return to the church to the love of the church, the people who are redeemed. Let us return to the place where He reigns sovereign. Not just that He reigns sovereign, but sovereign in our eyes over us. Where He is exalted as God Most High. Where our idols are crushed, and we are glad to have them crushed, like King Josiah destroying the altars throughout Israel. Don't do that one, Josiah. It's not really quite like that or that bad. We can probably keep that one around. You know, this, is, this, is, this is how Christians think about their pastors. That's why pastors constantly change the message. To the house of prayer where our sins are confessed. And there's a broken spirit and a contrite heart because... Oh, Jesus doesn't detest these things. He will never despise them. The church of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful reality in this world. And may we love his church. May we love his church. And may we love his church not when she gets everything right by our opinion. May we love his church while she's sinful and when she falls and when one of her members confesses sin beyond our imagination. And may we love her when she's weak and may we love her when she's unhealthy. You've heard me say many times, love the church more than its health. That place isn't for me. It's not good enough. Probably never will be till you go and help. You know, you might need the church to love you in your unhealth sometime. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's a beautiful reality. Let us forsake every vain thing that has to do with profiteering or impurity of the worship of God. Stand with me for prayer, would you?
Oh, Father, I don't even know what to pray right now. My spirit groans, and I know your spirit groans with us as we look at the American church and as we see the corruption, as we see the profiteering off your genuine worship when when what a strange thing it would be, Father, if people just came to church to pray and worship on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, their God. People would come and pray and confess sin and pray for one another and sing to you in prayer. Father, may everyone in your hearing this morning take truth to live by for the rest of their life. That will help them to have David's heart to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Oh, Jesus, get glory and cast us down in every way we need and build us up, tear us that you might bind us up, sting us in this all across our land, that you might heal us through repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.